You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 274, Green Takes Command. Over the last couple of episodes, we saw the effectiveness of relatively disorganized groups of militia fighting all over South Carolina in the fall of 1780. These forces were never large enough to defeat the British occupation, but they did keep alive the disputed control of the state and disrupted supply lines and resources for the British. That forced British General Charles Cornwallis to pay attention to them rather than think about invading North Carolina. Back in North Carolina, Continental General Horatio Gates remained in command, but was mostly just waiting for his successor to arrive. Gates had effectively ended his career at Camden back in August. The Continental Congress knew it was time for a new Southern commander. In the meantime, Gates tried to support the efforts of militia led by men like Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, and Elijah Clark. But Gates had no desire to enter the fight himself, and even if he did, he lacked the resources to launch any campaign of his own. Congress had been the body that selected General Horatio Gates to lead the Southern Army earlier that year. General Washington was never eager to pick a fight with Congress and always wanted to show deference to its decisions. That was especially the case with Gates, since Washington did not want to be perceived as undercutting Gates out of personal pique. Of course, a few years earlier, leaders had discussed replacing Washington with Gates as commander of the Continental Army. So Washington did not want to be perceived as denying a great officer a deserved command because of some personal rivalry. Washington let it be known indirectly that he had considered General Nathaniel Greene to be the best person for the job. At the same time, though, he accepted that it was Congress's decision to make, and he did not attempt to force his opinion on the delegates. General Washington had always thought highly of Nathaniel Greene, but Congress was not so sure. On several occasions, the young general had disrespected Congress. This included a threat to resign should Congress appoint French generals back in 1777. But more recently, Congress had questioned Greene's honesty and integrity while serving as quartermaster of the army, and that led to a whole other dispute. Greene did not seem to have many friends in Congress either. On paper, at least, there didn't seem to be much history that would recommend Greene for a job as a field commander. During the New York campaign of 1776, Greene had organized the defenses on Long Island that collapsed in about a day. His poor judgment not to evacuate Fort Washington in New York led to the second largest capture of Continental soldiers, behind only the fall of Charleston. Up until 1780, Greene had remained mostly with General Washington. Although he did command a division, he was really not given opportunities to go out on his own. 
He, as I said, had clashed with members of Congress on multiple occasions, and delegates did not see him as being properly deferential to civilian authority. Washington had practically forced Green to become quartermaster general during the Valley Forge encampment. It was a thankless and nearly impossible job. Nevertheless, Green struggled to keep the army in the field and supplied as best he could. Even so, Congress regularly criticized his work and investigated the quartermaster corps for possible corruption. Eventually, Green angrily resigned as quartermaster in 1780. His resignation to Congress was so angry and critical of Congress that many delegates wanted to cashier Green from the army entirely. General Washington had to do damage control and personally intervene to keep that from happening. Despite these issues, Green had Washington's full confidence. Washington had told others that if something happened to him, he wanted Green to become the new commander-in-chief of the army. On several occasions, Washington had left the army under Green's command for short periods while Washington attended to other business. Although Green was the 11th major general appointed by Congress, deaths and resignations had brought him up to number three by 1780. Only Horatio Gates and William Heath were more senior. Gates, of course, was pretty much a dead man walking in the army after his disaster at Camden. Heath had not been trusted with a combat command since 1776. Heath was more of a politician and administrator than really a general. So Heath was not a serious choice for any command that might involve conflict with the enemy. Next in line below Green in seniority was Benedict Arnold. And he had a good combat reputation and might have been a good choice a few months earlier, but his decision to betray his country and join the enemy had kind of taken him out of the running. Now, after Gates's loss at Camden, Green was pretty much the obvious choice to replace him. As I said, though, he did not get along well with Congress, and the delegates did not want to appoint Green themselves. Instead, Congress left the appointment up to General Washington, with most people knowing full well that Washington was going to appoint Green. On October 6th, the President of Congress, Samuel Huntington, wrote to General Washington, asking Washington to form a court of inquiry into the actions of General Gates for the loss of Camden several months earlier, and to appoint a replacement for Gates until such time as the court of inquiry could be completed. Essentially, Congress tasked Washington with picking a temporary replacement for command of the Southern Army. In this way, Congress was not really giving up its authority to pick military commanders in general, and Congress could simply replace Green if he did not appear up to the task after a few months that it would take to complete the inquiry into Gates's actions. Washington received the instructions from Congress about a week later, and almost immediately wrote to Green to inform him that he would take command of the Southern Army. At this time, Green was still headquartered near West Point, having just overseen the court-martial and execution of Major John Andre. Now, General Green faced the same problems that General Gates had previously faced in the South, but Green was going to take a very different approach to those problems. Recall that Gates had taken command of an army that he barely understood and marched it into battle within days of taking command to disastrous results. Although Green received his command in October, it would take him nearly two months before he actually took command of his new army. By the end of October, Green and his new second-in-command, the Baron von Steuben, 
were in Philadelphia begging Congress for men and supplies for their southern army. As usual, Congress had nothing. As Green traveled through Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, he met with state leaders, hoping to get some support there. Once again, state leaders offered little more than thoughts and prayers. Green was able to visit Mount Vernon during his trip south. Uh, Martha was there, George wasn't, obviously. While there, he wrote a letter to George Washington, saying that the state leaders, quote, promise me all the assistance in their power, but are candid to tell me that I must place little dependence on them, as they have neither money nor credit. Now, Virginia, of course, had much to lose from the fall of the Carolinas. It would bring the war to Virginia's doorstep and put it at risk of falling back under British control. The Continental Congress called on Virginia to raise 3,500 Continental soldiers to defend the state. It barely raised 1,500, and most of those were sickly draftees who quickly deserted. As Green entered North Carolina, he had already decided that he would have nowhere near the force needed to confront the British directly. Instead, he planned to continue the guerrilla war, harassing the enemy from multiple small units and taking on British outposts when the opportunity presented itself. Mostly, he hoped to keep some Continental Army in the field so that the British could not claim undisputed control of the Carolinas. On December 2, 1780, Green arrived at the American headquarters in Charlotte. He took command from General Gates the following day. Gates, of course, was already aware of his replacement, who had been on his way for some time, but rather than go back to Philadelphia and face a board of inquiry, Gates simply packed up and went home to Virginia. He didn't resign his commission, he just refused to cooperate with any of the investigations. So he never lost his commission, but he was also never again given a command within the Continental Army. He just kind of went into this military limbo technically still retaining his commission, but just living at home and doing nothing really with the Army or Congress. By the time Green had reached Charlotte to take command, he had already begun his preparations for what he expected to do with the Army. Green appointed a new quartermaster general for the Southern Army, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Carrington. He also appointed Colonel William Davy to serve as commissary general. I've referenced Colonel Davy in some past episodes. He has some impressive military records by this point. So Davy's attitude to our quartermaster was similar to that of Green's when Washington forced him to be quartermaster. Davy did not want the job and preferred to remain in the field. He told Green that he was a guerrilla fighter and was not good with money or accounts. Green responded to Davy not to worry that the Army didn't have any money or accounts. Green figured that a local and well-respected combat leader would have better luck extracting the needed food and supplies from the locals than some administrator who was good with paperwork. Green also deployed Colonel Tadeus Kosciusko and General Edward Stevens to prepare detailed surveys of the local rivers to determine their ability to transport goods and to note points where the armies could ford them. When Green took command, the Southern Army on paper consisted of about 2,300 men. However, only about 60% of those were present and fit for duty, so less than 1,500. There were not enough uniforms nor guns for all of the men, 
the bulk of the army, as it was, consisted of members of the Delaware and Maryland lines who were under the command of General William Smallwood. And one new asset for Green was the arrival of Daniel Morgan. Colonel Morgan's riflemen were some of the most important fighters at many critical battles earlier in the war. Yet, despite his leadership, Morgan had been passed over for promotion to general. He'd also suffered from a terrible sciatica. So he ended up returning home to Virginia in 1779 for bed rest. General Gates had begged Morgan to join him for what became the Camden campaign, but Morgan begged off, claiming that he was in too much pain to leave his bed. Even so, after the loss at Camden, Morgan managed to get back in the saddle and ride south to see what he could do. Shortly after his arrival, Gates informed Congress that Morgan was returning to active duty, and at that point, Congress finally promoted him to Brigadier General in October of 1780. Also moving south was Lieutenant Colonel Light Horse Harry Lee, who had just recently received his promotion from Major, about the same time that Congress promoted Morgan to General. Lee had distinguished himself in the Northern Campaign, Washington recommended that Congress give him an independent cavalry corps to supplement the work being done by Lieutenant Colonel William Washington in the South. Given the limited size and condition of his army, Green divided his forces so that there would be no final showdown with the British. He instructed Colonel Marion and General Sumter to continue doing what they were doing as best they could, harassing the enemy in South Carolina. Green also deployed a large portion of his Continentals under the command of General Morgan and with the support of Colonel Washington's dragoons to cooperate with Sumter's militia in attacking and harassing the enemy. Morgan would operate independently of Green's forces. Now, dividing your forces in the face of a superior enemy is almost always considered a big mistake in military strategy. It allows the enemy to attack and defeat each division in detail. But Green was not looking for a fight and not looking to win a major decisive battle. Each of his smaller armies would harass the enemy and would just retreat if attacked. Morgan's men moved west of the Catawba River, while Green left Charlotte to move his forces east of the Petey River in North Carolina. All of these changes left the British commander, Cornwallis, confused. Green's actions seemed to be contrary to all sensible military strategies. Cornwallis wasn't really sure if Green was just a fool, or if he really didn't understand what Green was up to. So, Cornwallis remained in Winsboro, South Carolina, which was near the North Carolina border. He was still awaiting reinforcements under General Alexander Leslie. Those reinforcements had left Virginia by sea and were expected to arrive in Charleston but by early December, there was still no word. Much of Green's strategy of a guerrilla war aligned with letters that he had already received from General Sumter suggesting these same actions. However, by putting Morgan in command of the militia forces who had fought under Sumter, Green risked creating a split. As I've said in many past episodes, Southern militia had a notorious reputation for refusing to cooperate with Continental strategies. Further, Sumter hoped that they could launch an attack on the main British force at Winsboro, something that Green was unwilling to do. Sumter was unhappy that Morgan was taking over the work he had been doing, 
but the fact that Sumter was still recovering from his wounds at Blackstock's plantation, and the fact that Governor Rutledge ordered him to cooperate with Green, kept everyone on the same page. After Morgan moved west, Green, as I said, took what was left of the army to the east. He only had about 1,100 men, and only about half of those were Continentals. Green's new camp, selected by Colonel Kosciusko, protected the army from an attack by the Petey River. It also would have allowed them to strike at targets in eastern South Carolina if Cornwallis took the bulk of his army further west after Morgan. Green was also well-positioned to attack Cornwallis if the British crossed back into North Carolina. So once in his new camp by late December, Green really just focused on training and supplying his army and waited to see what the British would do next. As Green waited, Morgan was looking for a fight. He had left Charlotte on December 21st with a total of about 600 men, some on foot, others on horseback. More than half of his force were Continentals of the Delaware and Maryland lines. They were supplemented by about 80 Continental Dragoons under the command of Colonel William Washington, and another 200 or so were Virginia militia, also mounted. Many of the militia on this mission, however, were former Continental soldiers who had completed their enlistments but had considerable battlefield experience. Morgan's men marched through several days of driving rain, making it difficult to ford swollen rivers. By Christmas Day, they had marched about 60 miles from Charlotte and set up camp in South Carolina. That day, 60 South Carolina militia under Colonel Andrew Pickens rode into camp and offered their support. I think I've only mentioned Pickens in passing before, but he really was one of the more important Patriot militia leaders in South Carolina, along with Marion and Sumter. Pickens was the son of Scotch-Irish immigrants. He was born in Pennsylvania, but his family moved to the Waxhalls when he was still young. As a young man, Pickens got experience as an Indian fighter in the Cherokee War of 1760-61. Pickens later settled on a large plantation in western South Carolina. He was a patriot leader from the outset. When the revolution began, he was captain of militia. Early in the war, he had skirmished with Tories near Fort 96 and served on an expedition that destroyed a number of Cherokee villages. He had led forces at Kettle Creek back in early 1779, which caused the British to abandon much of the backcountry after they had captured Augusta, Georgia. By 1780, Pickens had risen to the rank of colonel and commanded his own militia regiment. Now, Pickens had been at Charleston when the British captured the city and its defenders back in the spring of 1780 when the army was still being led by General Benjamin Lincoln. At that time, Pickens accepted parole and returned to his plantation. Like other leaders who had accepted parole, Pickens was absent when a Loyalist force destroyed his farm and attempted to intimidate him into accepting a commission in a Loyalist militia. As a result, Pickens once again took up arms with the Patriots. In addition to Pickens's men, other militia also rallied to Morgan's camp. Although Thomas Sumter and Elijah Clark were still personally recovering from battlefield injuries, many of the men who had served under them turned to Morgan's camp to continue the fight. So within days, Morgan's camp had grown to more than a thousand men. 
Morgan soon received intelligence that a regiment of mounted Loyalist militia from Georgia, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Waters, was camped about 20 miles west of Morgan's camp. Morgan deployed Colonel Washington's dragoons, supplemented by about 200 more mounted Patriot militia. When the Loyalist Waters learned that the Patriots were moving to attack his smaller militia force, he retreated further to the west toward the larger British encampment at Fort 96. Washington, however, caught up with the Loyalists while they were still about 25 miles from the fort. Waters formed his Loyalists on a hill and prepared to meet the attack. Still mounted, Washington drew his sword and led his cavalry into a direct charge at the enemy. The Patriots gave a wild war whoop as they charged, unnerving the enemy. The Loyalist line turned and ran without firing a single volley. The Patriots chased down the Loyalists and cut them down with their sabers. I've seen different accounts of the casualties, but the Americans killed or wounded between 100 and 150 of the enemy and captured another 40, out of a total of about 260 men. The Americans took no casualties. A few of the Loyalists who managed to escape made their way to Williams's plantation, about 10 miles from the battle, where Loyalist forces had established an outpost to the larger force at Fort 96. The following day, Washington deployed a smaller force to attack the outpost. The Loyalists there, however, had fled overnight back to Fort 96. Now, the British considered the Hammond Store Massacre, as it came to be known, to be an act of brutality. And based on the lopsided outcome, it seems like that was probably a fair assessment. Most of the Patriot attackers were experienced militia who were used to the rules of no quarter for the enemy. The attack got the attention of General Cornwallis, who deployed Bannister Tarleton to put down this new threat. But we're going to have to cover that British response in a future episode. Next time, we're headed back to Europe as Great Britain declares war on the Dutch. This episode is supported by Factor. Let's face it, preparing good and healthy meals is a lot of work. As a result, I often end up eating just junk food. Factor offers a better solution. You can get pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and more. It's going to be less expensive than takeout, and since it's pre-delivered, it's already home waiting for you when you get there. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, and you can schedule the number of meals each week that works for you. Best of all, it tastes good and is good for you. As a special deal for our listeners of the American Revolution podcast, you can go to factormeals.com ARP50 and use the code ARP50 to get 50% off. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com dot com slash ARP five O to get fifty percent off your first order. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, Michael Gaylord, and John Celentano, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam and TJ Walker. Welcome also to New Standard Bearers on Patreon. Rory Mitrick, 
Terry Watmore, Adam Weiner, and Jonathan Hull. Each of you will receive your first monthly flag magnet soon. All of my Patreon supporters who give at least $10 a month receive a different magnet each month representing a flag used during the American Revolution. It's my way of saying thanks for helping support the costs of running this podcast. Thanks also to Joel Potts for a one-time gift. You can help support this show by making a one-time contribution via PayPal or Venmo. There are details and links on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. This week's topic, in my view, marks the beginning of the end of the Revolutionary War. Nathaniel Green's duel with British General Charles Cornwallis is really the last major campaign of the war, ending with the Battle of Yorktown. General Daniel Morgan's decision to join the fight was also critical to this final victory. As we'll see in some upcoming episodes, Morgan's leadership results in some really surprising victories. One thing that I find interesting was that Morgan's promotion to Brigadier General in October of 1780 was the only promotion to that rank in a three-year period. Between William Irvine's promotion in May 1779 and Otho Williams's promotion in May 1982, Morgan stands by himself as the only person promoted to brigadier in those three years. Even major general promotions were few and far between. Congress had promoted a dozen men to major generals in 1777, and it basically turned off that spigot completely after that point. Uh, von Steuben slipped in a few months later at, in May 1778, but after that there was no one for two and a half years. Then, in the fall of 1780, about the same time that Morgan made brigadier, Congress promoted William Smallwood to major general. Smallwood, you may recall I talked about in the main show, was in charge of the Maryland and Delaware lines that were serving under Nathaniel Green at this time. So this also meant that the Southern Command had three major generals, Green, Smallwood, and von Steuben, despite rarely having a combined force above 2,000 soldiers fit for duty. The other promotion about this same time was Samuel Parsons, who remained in the North, where not much fighting was going on by this time. I suspect that the promotion of Parsons was more of an affirmative action measure since after Arnold left the army, there were no more major generals from Connecticut in the Continental Army, and Connecticut was a major contributor of soldiers. So after those two promotions, there were no more promotions to major general until after Yorktown. Congress was really having a problem keeping an army of any size in the field, and with that shrinking army, the number of generals became a bit top-heavy. So the fact that Morgan got his promotion anyway, I think is a testament to the fact that it was long overdue. Personally, I think Morgan ranks among the top 10 most effective Continental officers in the entire Revolutionary War. My praise for Morgan, though, really shouldn't take anything away from General Green, who many historians consider one of the most underrated generals of the war. As we will see in some future episodes, Green, along with Morgan, do some really amazing strategic things that are still studied by students of military strategy to this day. Uh, There are several good biographies of Nathaniel Green. I've recommended one previously. Today, I want to recommend Nathaniel Green, A Biography of the American Revolution by Gerald Carbone. 
This is not really a full biography of Green. The book really just covers his war years. The first half of the book is his time with Washington in the North. The second half is his time commanding the Southern Army. The book itself is not too long, a little over 200 pages. It does a pretty good job and is well written. There are plenty of used copies available, as well as a Kindle version. You can also read the book online at archive.org. The author, Carbone, is a journalist. He also wrote a biography of George Washington. The Green Book was published in 2010. As I said, it's a good read. So if you want to learn more about Green as a general, take a look at Nathaniel Green, A Biography of the American Revolution. My online recommendation is a three-volume set called The Life of Nathaniel Green by George Washington Green. The author is General Green's grandson. He published these books just after the Civil War. Volume 1 covers Green's early life and the first few years of the war. Volume 2 covers Green's frustrating years during and after Valley Forge. And Volume 3 covers his years as commander of the Southern Army. Together, they're a pretty comprehensive look at Green's life, focusing, of course, on his years as general. Because of their age, these books are, of course, in the public domain and available all over the Internet. I have included direct links to all three volumes on my website and on the blog post for this episode. My question this week asks, do all plantations have slaves? This is a common misconception. A lot of people seem to think that the word plantation basically means a farm that has slaves on it. That's not the case. In earlier times, the difference in definition between a farm and a plantation was usually one of size but also of purpose. A farm was land that was primarily owned for the growth of food for the owner's family to eat. This was called subsistence farming. People would grow food, prepare it, and eat it. Of course, they might have a few items that they grew for sale, but the primary purpose was food for the household. These were true family farms, where families worked the land and ate the bulk of what they grew and harvested. A plantation was land where the owner grows things primarily for the purpose of selling them for cash. Now, these items might be food, but they could also be raw materials for textiles, dyes, or a variety of other things. Tobacco, for example. Cotton. A plantation might also grow food for those who lived on the land, but that was a side purpose to help support the primary purpose of making money. Typically, as you might guess, plantations would be much larger than farms. In an era before tractors and other farming equipment, these plantations required a great deal of laborers. Before the Industrial Revolution, farmers were barely able to produce more than they needed for their own families. So to support the owner and all the workers, and still have plenty to sell to customers, a plantation would have to be pretty large. The laborers were sometimes slaves, but could also be free laborers or indentured servants. In the British colonies in America, southern plantations tended to rely more heavily on slaves, while northern plantations relied more heavily on free labor. And by free labor, I mean men who were free and had to be paid for their labor. The really big plantations tended to be in the southern colonies, and over time we've come to associate the word plantation with slaves. In truth, pretty much all farms today would be considered plantations under the older definitions, since almost no one does subsistence farming anymore. 
Almost all modern farms use some combination of mechanized equipment and free labor to produce crops specifically for sale. But because of the association with slavery, the term plantation has fallen out of favor. As a result, we call anywhere that grows crops for pretty much any purpose today a farm. The word plantation is only used to describe historic farms, even if those lands never use slave labor. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either on email or via Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.